Well, please join me by turning in God's Word to John chapter 2. And as you uh, turn there, if you have a few Bibles, that's found on page 887. You've uh, been with us the last few weeks. We know, you know that we're beginning to dive into the book of John. And here we have uh, the Apostle John who is writing uh, closer to the end of his life and reflecting upon uh, the great truths that he came to know through Jesus Christ. And he even came to want, know the one who is the truth. And he wrote this, as he tells us at the end of the book, so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we might have life in his name. And so as he begins the account, uh, you remember, he begins with uh, how the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then Jesus, uh, with the testimony of John the Baptist, began to call his disciples to him. And then we see in chapter 2, the beginning of uh, his signs, uh, the works that he would do that would continue uh, through the course of his several-year earthly ministry. And we saw last week how, uh, or last time, how Jesus turned water into wine at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. He did what only the Creator could do as he was bringing about this new creation here on earth. And that, of course, is reflective of uh, Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And uh, a new theme that comes into view as we come to the second half of chapter 2 here today is Jesus coming to the temple. And if you remember all of the things that are spoken of the temple in the Old Testament, you'll remember that it's this picture of Eden. It's this picture of God meeting with his people in his created order even before there was sin. And yet because sin has come into the world, the Lord created a place where God's people would meet with him and a place where sacrifice would be offered for sin so that people might know the living and true God and have fellowship with him. And now Jesus turns his ministry in John's account here from the region of Galilee back to the region of Judea as he comes to the temple. So let's give attention to God's word here, beginning in chapter 2, verse 13, and we'll read through the end of the chapter, but let's pray before we do. Lord, we thank you that you have indeed come to your temple. We thank you that it is uh, with joy and with zeal that you come to your temple. And we thank you that you came on that day in the year 28 and that you have come to us here in the year 2022 as well. And so we pray that you would give us uh, great joy as we look at your word. And would you fill us with a sense of awe at Jesus Christ? We pray this in his name. Amen. This is God's word. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. 
When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Thus ends this reading of God's holy word, which we pray he would write on our hearts today and forever. You're a 20-year-old young man in the year 28, and your grandfather was a pigeon seller, and your father was a pigeon seller, and now you're a pigeon seller too. And the sun is shining brightly on this day of the Passover as it uh, begins. And the whole of the city of Jerusalem is filled with all kinds of travelers who have come to celebrate the Passover. And this fills you with a certain sense of joy and purpose as you head to the temple and you have all of your pigeons uh, in tow, these uh, crate after crate of pigeons, and you're able to think about the wonderful service that you are rendering to the people who are coming to the temple. And you remember that in Deuteronomy 16, 16, it was Moses himself who had said that all of the men in the nation would come to Jerusalem three times a year. One of those being the Passover, which is the Jewish Independence Day. And as you go up to the temple and you uh, drag your pigeons there, uh, you are, are just so very grateful, first of all, that uh, as your grandfather told you a few generations ago, uh, it used to be a lot harder because all of the pigeon traders and the people who would bring the sheep and the oxen, uh, they used to be a- across the Kidron Valley in the Mount of Olives and that region there. And uh, this was, of course, so that the people who were coming from the farthest reaches of the kingdom could come and they'd be able to bring their money and they would be able to buy the sheep or the oxen or the pigeons so that they might be able to make a right sacrifice. And there were money changers as well because, of course, you had to have that certain uh, coin from Tyre, pure silver, to be offered that half shekel tax for every man who would go up. And so you and all of your buddies, and, and you've been doing this for years, uh, likely since you were a little kid, you, you know the other traders who were there. Uh, you know the gig, and you know it's probably going to be a very profitable season for you as well. And this fills you with some amount of joy as well. And so you go up to get set up in the temple. And the, the sense of all of the people being here, Uh, begins to just fill your heart again with this sort of joy, purpose, and and sense of privilege that you get to be here because you remember that this is your Independence Day. Because on that day, so many years ago, Moses and the people of God, your ancestors, were enslaved in Egypt. And God had done mighty signs and wonders And finally, on that last uh, night there in Egypt, God had, had announced to his people that there was going to be the Passover and that the lamb needed to be slain, a sacrifice offered, and that meat would be eaten on that particular night to give strength to the people of God. And there was unleavened bread 
And the blood then from the lamb was to be taken and it was to be placed on the lintels, on the the edges of the doors. So that in the middle of the night, when the angel of death would come, he would smite the firstborn of Egypt just as he had promised. But when he looked upon those doorposts, he would see the blood of the sacrificial lamb that had been sacrificed in the place of sinful people so that they might be passed over and so that they might be set free. And on that night, of course, the people of Israel rose up and they walked out of Egypt to their freedom. And this had been celebrated year after year after year, and now you get to celebrate it as well. The only problem, of course, for you is that you're not entirely free because you know the history of your people and you know that the Romans are still ruling over the people of Israel. And this is made more real by the fact that you're sitting there in the temple waiting for the next customer to come by as you're pressed in with all of the others and the the noise and the clatter and the the lowing of the cattle and the bleeding of the sheep and the clucking and the the cooing of your pigeons is going on. You, You look up. And you see above the temple at the top of the Antonia Fortress, one of the Roman soldiers who's looking down upon this feast. And he's a well-educated Roman soldier. And he knows that when it's Independence Day in one of these Roman colonies, they've got to be especially on the lookout for trouble. They've got to be aware of potential uprisings so that they can be put down. And all of this is going on and you're soaking it all in as you think about your history, your heritage, as you think about the fact that Yahweh has chosen you as his people and you are there and you are participating in this grand act of worship providing for those who are coming. And all of a sudden, in the midst of all of this, you begin to hear some noise off to the side. And you've heard about this particular man named Jesus And you see that he's actually moving in your direction and he doesn't look happy. All of a sudden you realize that he has put together a cord of strands and he's turned it into a whip. And here you are in the court of the Gentiles, this place where people are supposed to come and call on God's name and you think you're doing a service for all of these people and Jesus isn't happy and he has made this whip And the whip is being cracked. And the the cattle are all of a sudden jumpy. Just like dogs in the 21st century will be when the firecrackers go off. And the sheep are bleeding. And they're beginning to, to run and to move out of the gates of the temple. And all of a sudden you, you look around and you see that the, all, all the pigeons seem to be okay. Sometimes it's good to sell the smallest and most insignificant thing, you know. And you look and you see Jesus has not only driven out the cattle and the sheep, but now he's turned to the money changers and he's dumped over their bowls of money and he's pushed over their tables. And the area, this court of the Gentiles is being entirely cleared out. And you're thinking to yourself, well, at least I'm safe. Until all of a sudden Jesus turns in your direction. And he looks you in the eye. 
And you have this fleeting thought for just a moment that maybe what Jesus will realize here is that that actually we're doing the right thing. I mean, it's in the law that we should be allowed to make these kinds of sales just so that people can worship. And you think, surely common sense will get a hold of Jesus. And maybe a little bit of mercy. And he'll come to you and he'll put his arm around you and say, you know, I really appreciate the fact that you're here selling these pigeons because people need a way to sacrifice. And, and maybe what he'll do is put his arm around you and say, but you know, I just, I need you to know you're just a little bit off. There's a better way. Because you see that this area here is supposed to be where people come and they pray. And it's supposed to be a place of quiet and of worship. And so you've just been a little misguided. And if we could just get you to, to, to move back out of the temple, maybe it'll be a little bit of an inconvenience, but you can just move back to the other side of the Kidron Valley and, and then everything can just go on and it'll be okay. But no, what does Jesus do? He looks you, poor pigeon seller, in the eye. And what does he say? Verse 16, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And he's not dealing with the cattle dealers. And he's not dealing with the money changers. Now he's dealing with you. And he says, get these things out of here. This is my father's house. And it is not to be a house of trade. Well, the disciples, as we see in verse 17, remembered, and and perhaps not right at the moment, but perhaps later, these words from Psalm 69, uh, verse 9, where the psalmist is brokenhearted. And we're going to sing this in a little while. He's full of sadness. But the psalmist David uh, is full of zeal for God's house. And the disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And they understand that these words were spoken about Jesus Christ himself. And you as a pigeon trader have seen now with your own eyes and heard with your own ears the zeal of the one who is God in the flesh as he has dealt with you. And this is what you brothers and sisters today need to see. And you need to bear witness to the zeal of Jesus for his house. Jesus came to his temple, fulfilling Malachi chapter 3, that the Lord would come to his temple to purify and to cleanse his temple. And when he comes to cleanse, he doesn't evaluate the things that you and I are doing. And he doesn't look at the things that are going on in our lives and help us to make a few adjustments here and there in the way we live or even in the way we worship. But he's after something far greater And there is a zeal and a passion that he has for his house that is unmistakable. And it is my prayer that you would see this zeal and this passion that Jesus has here. He's come to his people. He's come to them as they're calling upon them. And he has moved into the very heart 
of the nation of Israel itself coming to its temple, the heart of its institutions, the heart of, of all of its practices, and even of its exercises of godliness. And he points out that they may be doing a lot of things right. They may have a few things wrong, but Jesus isn't here just to tweak a few things that are wrong. No, he's come to clear house. He's come to those who have fallen prey to legalism and formalism. He's come to those who have fallen prey to uh, all sorts of of man-made efforts to get to know God that are built upon the scriptures. And he's come to clean house. And he comes to the very hearts of his people. Jesus didn't just speak to those who were there in the temple that day in general. But he came and looked particular people in the eye. Like this pigeon seller. Because he came to do business with the hearts and souls of people. With you and with me. Well, he does come and he pushes in on us in the same kind of way. He comes to those who've gone to church for a long time. He's come to those who are able to muse upon the scriptures as they come to God's house. To think about their heritage, to think about their life experiences, to think even about the the truths that they've read this week. And Jesus confronts his people afresh. And he shows us that life with him will never and can never simply be about following those forms. But he has come to deal with the hearts of people. He has come to reform worship, but not merely in the external sense. He comes to reform our worship and the way we think about God, even internally, so that we might know him. Now we'll see more about his zeal and his passion, but the first thing that's worth noting in this story and to sort of feel it viscerally is the zeal that Jesus has for his house. And there's a response then from the Jews in verse 18. Uh, They're perplexed and they say to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And under the surface, what are they really saying here? They're asking the question, who gave you authority to do these things? Now, Leon Morris observes that they recognized in that they didn't just drive Jesus out or or throw him away. They recognized that he's coming with some sort of moral authority here. And it was a moral authority that didn't have so much to do with the ruckus that he caused in the temple. Because you remember those Roman soldiers were up there looking on. It it wasn't such such an incredibly powerful uh, physical event that the Romans felt the need to come in. And to stop Jesus in this act. No, no, there was something profoundly moral in Jesus' approach. And they recognized, these Jewish leaders, that Jesus was encroaching upon their turf. That he was pressing in just as he does to all of us. And he was making them pretty uncomfortable, frankly. And so their instinct is to protect their own turf. And this is our instinct too, isn't it? To, to say, well, what authority is there in these things? So let's, let's get to the book. Let's get in the details. Let's get in the process. You show us now what, what real authority there is that you have. And in this case, they wanted a sign. Paul writes later in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, that Jews seek signs and Greeks wisdom. This was something that the Jews were known for, was looking for this kind of authoritative sign. Because 
when they came to Passover, they were looking for a Messiah to come. They were looking for someone to help them overthrow the Romans. And there was some sense in which they realized maybe Jesus is it. So they wanted to see a sign. And it all sounded pious enough, but they didn't realize that he had actually already given them a sign as he cleansed the temple. But he does answer their question. And what does he say? He says simply, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. And you can hear the scoffs and the laughs. They say, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. It's taken 46 years to build this Herodian temple. Massive stones that are still visible underneath uh, all of the rubble there in Jerusalem that are an amazing Uh, It was an amazing feat just to get these stones of such massive size to Jerusalem to build this magnificent edifice. There was a thing of glory. It was a project that was still under construction. The cranes, as it were, were still hanging overhead. And this construction project would go on uh, up until about the year 64. So it's going to go on for another 20 plus uh, years just in time for it to be destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. It was uh, one of the, the uh, uh, most dramatic uh, conclusions, I guess you could say, to one of the grandest building projects of a material thing in all of Jewish history. But Jesus says here, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it. And they say, you're nuts. John adds this commentary then in verse 21 because it's really the end of the event. And he says, but Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, three years later, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus was talking about the temple of his body, which the Jews could not understand. But this is part of what it would mean that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. What was the temple? It was the dwelling place of God with man. And Jesus comes and what he's showing is that it's not just that your worship needs to be reformed a little here, here, or here. But the whole thing has to be thrown out. Because you will never rightly approach God by simply getting your external forms correct. The temple of the living God is never This building, it's never the stuff we do. It is that we must come to Jesus Christ himself, the same one that looked you, that pigeon trader in the eye. And Jesus shows that the glory that's going to come to Israel is going to come not through more blood being shed in that temple, but by his own blood being shed upon the cross and then on the third day being raised up. Now, in one sense, the Jews were right. It is absolutely unthinkable, particularly if you're looking at government building projects, to think that something could be destroyed and a building like that be raised back up in three days. It didn't happen after 9-11 that uh, the tower to replace the twin towers was raised up in three days just not possible so the jews were right in their scoffing in one sense if they were thinking in their own terms 
But Jesus is actually going to show something far more dramatic than even that. He's going to come back from the dead on the third day. And what did this lead to in the disciples? We we wonder what they were seeing, and you have to wonder what that pigeon trader also saw. It's my speculation here that it is one of those pigeon traders that was converted later who rehearsed this story to John. John may have been seeing it from his own vantage point, but look again at verse 16. He told those who sold the pigeons, that is, directly. You get the sense that this is the sort of testimony from someone who had Jesus looking him in the eye when Jesus said this to him. And it seems likely to me that this is one who has come and professed faith later with the other disciples, remembering what Jesus had said and believed the scripture and the word that he had spoken after Jesus was raised on the third day. What Jesus is showing is that glory is not going to come to the people of God simply through the temple being raised up and the glory of it being seen and a physical building being finished. It's not going to be Uh, shown to the world by us getting our lives perfectly in order, by our having uh, families that are are perfectly set, by our getting our our theology exactly right, by our figuring out how to serve our community and the people around us in the, the best and right ways, by our getting our evangelistic and apologetic messages exactly right. None of these things will do it. How does glory come? It only comes as Jesus descends on our behalf at the cross to pay for our sins and then to be raised on the third day. And this is the most glorious miracle that the world has ever seen. And it is our Independence Day, brothers and sisters. That day when Jesus rose from the dead. It was a day of freedom for that pigeon trader. It was a day of freedom for his disciples. And it is a day of freedom for you and for me because he hasn't given us just some better external temple or some plan that we get to work out here among ourselves. But that same Jesus that looked in the eyes of the, of the pigeon trader is here looking at you today from heaven. Not like that Roman soldier looking to make sure you don't make a ruckus from the the top of the fortress. No, it is Jesus who looks down from heaven, who is King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who is the temple of God and who has raised up a temple for himself in his church by drawing people to himself. You need Jesus. You need to bear witness to his zeal and you secondly then like his disciples of old need to believe his word and to believe that all of those things that that pigeon trader thought about as he was coming into the temple that day are fulfilled in Jesus Christ and it is in him that there is life. So we have to bear witness to his zeal and we have to believe the words that he'd spoken But there is more still that is here for us in verses 23 through 25. He's there in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So he was doing other signs. He was healing people as he begins his ministry at the first of the three Passovers in which he would participate. And incidentally, the first is here. The second is in John chapter 6. And then the third is in John chapter 11 and through the end of the book. 
but he's here doing these signs. And we're told in verse 24 that Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he didn't need anyone to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus doesn't need someone to come along and testify to what's in your heart or what kind of person you are. He didn't need that then. And there were people in that day who were believing. They were saying they believed. They were in awe of Jesus at one level. But they didn't have saving faith. They, They had an external form. They believed in the things that they were seeing, but their hearts hadn't been changed. And next week we'll see more of what that change of heart looks like as we move into the story of Nicodemus. But look at what we're told Jesus didn't do. He didn't entrust himself to them. Now, that's essentially the the same word as Jesus' disciples believing in him when his glory was manifested back in verse 11, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago. They saw his glory and they believed in him, but now we see of these other people that Jesus didn't entrust himself. He didn't believe in them, as it were. But what's the really good news that is embedded in that? The the good news is this by implication that Jesus does entrust himself to people who believe in him. Not because of their faith or their goodness or something that is in them, but those who do believe in Jesus Christ. He, He doesn't come as someone who is driving out the Uh, the, the lowing cattle and the bleeding sheep. There is one sense in which he does that, but that's not all he does. What does he do in the hearts of people? Well, look back to verse 17. You'll remember that his disciples remembered Psalm 69, which says, zeal for your house will consume me. When it says that zeal for Jesus' house would consume him, it doesn't simply mean Jesus had a, a sense of burning passion in his heart for God's temple being cleansed. It means that Jesus' zeal for the house of God would literally consume him. It would consume him on the cross because he loved the temple of God so much. Now, Jesus' physical body is the dwelling place of God with man. It's the place where the Father dwelt. And his love for his own Father was so great that he wanted to do his Father's will. He was filled with such passion for his Father's plan to elect a people to be his very own that he would ultimately make as his dwelling place here on earth that Jesus Passion would consume him on the cross because he was so filled with love for the Father and not only for the Father, but for you. You are the temple of the living God. Why are you now the temple of the living God? Why is it that he's been pleased to come and to clear the idols out of your heart and all the formalism so that he might dwell there? It's because of his great love for you. And so when it says that zeal for the house of God would consume Jesus, what it's really communicating there is that his zeal and his love for his father and for you would take him to the cross 
so that he might dwell in your hearts through faith. Do you see it? Do you see the wonder of the love of your Savior? Who came not because he was mostly just irritated that there are cows and sheep and pigeons that have been brought into the temple. What was his concern? His concern was that there were people who thought they were serving God in right ways, but their hearts were cold and they were dead. They were caught in the trappings, but they didn't know the creator of the universe. And so Jesus came and he cleaned house and he comes today to clean house in the hearts of his people because he loves you with an everlasting love. And so what you need to know this morning as he comes to this temple He's coming not just to this place in general, but that same Jesus who spoke to the pigeon trader is speaking to you. And Jesus doesn't need anyone else to tell him what's in your heart. What does the prophet Jeremiah say? He's speaking on behalf of the Lord. He says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Or we can think about 1 Kings chapter 8 when Solomon was praying the prayer of dedication over the original temple. And he is pleading with God to hear in heaven the, the, the prayers of his people and to render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind, that they may fear you all the days that they live on the land that you gave to our fathers. He knows your heart. He knows the sin. He knows the coldness, maybe, even, that's there in your own heart. And in spite of all of that, he has come full of zeal and passion for you, willing to endure his own passions there upon the cross so that life might come to you. And what does he do? He comes and he works faith in the hearts of his people so that he might dwell in their hearts. And so there were people here this day who Jesus didn't entrust himself because he knew that they had a superficial faith. They had a faith that was spurious, even though they spoke with their lips. But here's the promise that Jesus gives to you because of his zeal for his house, that all who call upon him with a pure heart, he will receive. And those who believe in him and who receive him, as is said in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, to them he gives the right to become children of God. Those who are calling upon his name. And what is the the wonder then that is given to us? We'll turn in conclusion to Ephesians chapter 3. The apostle Paul is just filled with wonder at the reality of all of this that Jesus has come to do. And he is bowing himself now before the Lord, not in the court of the Gentiles, but he is bowing his heart by the power of the Spirit. And in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant to you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge 
that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. If you see the zeal that your Savior has for his house, and you are filled with faith like the disciples of old to believe the words of Jesus and all of the scriptures, then you too will experience what it means to be the very dwelling place of God and to know the love of your Savior, Jesus Christ, that surpasses knowledge. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you didn't just give us a temple or a system of religion or a set of rules and morality. You didn't just give us a a blueprint for things that we could do that would be meaningful and purposeful in life. But we thank you that it is your great desire and plan that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and that we, as your temple, would be filled with all the fullness of God. We want to be filled with your fullness today, Lord. We thank you that that has been made possible for us through the work of Jesus Christ. And we thank you that it is still his zeal and his desire to be known in his people. So Lord, we pray that today you would dwell in our hearts through faith so that we would be rooted and grounded in your love. And we pray this in Christ's name.